Thank you, choir. Well, this morning we start a brand new series uh, for these next couple of Sundays today and in the next two Sundays, just three weeks long, a series entitled Prevailing Grace. We're going to look at the concept of grace and what the Bible has to say about grace, how that intersects our lives as well. So starting a brand new series today. A few, uh, few weeks ago, Susie and I had an opportunity to, uh, to go to Marsh Point where Hannah, uh, Hannah and Drew actually, our, two of our kids go, go to school and uh, Hannah is our fourth grader. She was in a spelling bee and so she was representing her class. She and one other student representing her class, and they were in the school-wide spelling bee. Now, this was good because I remember being in spelling bees when I was a kid, like in my class. I never won my class spelling bee, and, and, and it wasn't my fault. It was because they gave me hard words, all right? Everybody else got cat and dog. I got, you know, like anti-disestablishmentarianism, those kind of things. So, uh, so I never got to really advance. I never got to move on. So here's my daughter, right? She's in the spelling bee. And, uh, and it was so much fun just going and watching her do this and watching all those kids compete and, and be able to share uh, you know, their, their, uh, you know, their knowledge and how well they could spell. And, and inevitably, if you've ever watched a spelling bee, you're going to see something that takes place almost in every single circumstance. There's going to be a child, a student, who's going to say, can you please use that word in a sentence? Right? Have you ever watched it on ESPN, by the way? Spelling Bee is a national sport now. Have any of you, have any of you seen that on ESPN? Man, it is, it is, it is amazing. I mean, you need to grill out, invite friends over to watch the Spelling Bee when it comes on ESPN. It is good. It is, it is riveting. Lots of hard words. It is extremely riveting. And, uh, and so when you watch it on TV, it's the same thing. You'll have a, a child you know, who will say, could you please use that word in a sentence? And then they use it so that you understand the context and on and on. Well, here's the thing. Here, here's what I want us to do for this morning. I want us to think about the word grace, okay? And we're going to use that word in a sentence because you're familiar with the word grace. We use the word and we hear the word grace in a lot of different contexts, right? For example, if a person, you know, if they fail, you know, if they, if they, uh, if they fall short, we will say that person what? They fell from grace. If you ever go out to eat, there's somebody who's going to say, hey, do you mind saying grace? which I still haven't understood exactly what that is. You know, the sarcastic side of me wants to say grace. You know? So what is saying grace? So we understand it means to ask God to bless the food, ask God to bless us and, and the hands that prepared, all those kind of things. So we understand what that means. But it's still, it's a, it's a, a, a phrase that we use where we introduce the word grace. If, if, uh, if you, you know, do some favors for another person you know, and you get on their good side, we say that you're in their good graces. You know, if someone is, is especially skilled at, at uh, you know, handling a variety of circumstances very well, you know, they'll say they handled that circumstance with grace. So we use the word in a lot of different ways. In fact, if you've ever been late paying off your credit card, you're thankful for that one thing called a, what, grace period, you know? Oh, man, that is awesome. You know, we love the grace period. So we use these words in a lot of different ways. But yet when we go to Scripture, we see that same exact word many, many times, the word grace. And for some reason, it confuses us. For some reason, we can't accept simply what the Bible says about grace. And it's because we're so confused in, in, in a sense that we don't see grace demonstrated in this world very often. You know, grace is it's just not prevailing. It's not prevalent in our world today. For example, if, if, uh, you, know, if you go to a baseball game, you know, that, that batter steps to the batter's box, he gets three strikes. And if he, if he takes three strikes, he's done, he's out. That batter will never turn to the umpire and say, oh, come on, man, show some grace. Give me a fourth strike. You know, they don't do that. You know, it's three strikes and you're out. In the place where you work, you have certain standards. You have parameters that you operate off of in your workplace. And if you break any of those, some of them are so big that if you break any of those rules, if you step outside the parameters, I mean, you will lose your job. There, there is no grace. 
I mean, you're not going to be given a second chance. I remember when I was a kid, I was... Uh, you, know, you remember the strangest things you know, from your childhood. I remember being in a store one time, and I remember seeing it was like this little store with all the knickknacks, the kind of things that moms and dads love and kids hate, that kind of a store. And I remember being in there, and, uh, and they had this little sign on one of the shelves that said, pretty to look at, lovely to hold, but if you break it, consider it sold. You know, that was, their, that was their little phrase, meaning don't break our stuff or you're going to pay for it. There's no grace in this place. And so when we look at grace in Scripture, it's hard for us to really put handles to it. Because it is so backwards, isn't it? Grace is so backwards from the way that our world operates. Here's what I want us to do in this series. We're going to look at grace from a number of different perspectives. And this morning, we're going to look at a message simply entitled, The Gift of Grace. And we're going to look, we're going to move around a little more than I often do in the New Testament. We're going to move around a little bit today. But we're going to be looking at the gift of grace and what the New Testament has to say. We're going to pull out a few passages of Scripture, really begin to trace this concept of grace. And I really hope you'll, you'll, you'll plan to be here these next two Sundays as we just take a, a quick, short look, three weeks, at this topic of grace. Some of you, when you read the Bible, you know, you've already disagreed with me. You've already said, you know, Brooks, I don't know that I see grace so much in the Bible. Because after all, isn't the Bible an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of a book? Yeah, it does have that in there. Some of you will say, well, you know, Brooks, the God of the Old Testament was different than the God of the New Testament. There was no grace in the Old Testament. I'll give you grace in the New, but there's no grace in the Old Testament. I can kind of see where you'd say that. I disagree, but I can see where you, where you could say that. And so some of you, when you look at the topic of grace, even from a biblical perspective, it doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't seem to make sense. It's, it's, not, it's not in your framework of understanding according to what God's Word. So I want us to look at a few principles today that I hope will be helpful. The first principle is this, that grace is available. The only reason grace is available is because God is real. The only reason we even have grace as a concept in our, in our, in our lives the whole concept of grace, whether it's a credit card company or whether it's, you know, you mess up and someone shows grace or you ask for grace. The whole reason we have the concept of grace to begin with is because God is real. That when we understand what grace truly is in every single instance, an understanding of grace traces right back to who God is, traces right back to him. There is a New Testament word, a Greek word, and the Greek word is the Greek word charis. It's used 155 times, over 150 times in the New Testament. You see it all throughout the New Testament. And it's that Greek word, charis, that we translate as grace. Almost in every sense, when you read the word grace in the New Testament, it's going to be that Greek word, that Greek word, charis. And we attach different meanings to what grace is to help us understand it in church life, right? You know, there are times, some of you, maybe early in your Christian life, you picked up this little acronym. Maybe you bought a bumper sticker or you have a magnet on your fridge that says grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, all right? And, and that's kind of your understanding. And that's good. That works. I mean, that, that's a good little understanding. It doesn't cover everything, but it, it's a start. For others of you, you, you describe grace as, as God's unmerited favor, as though there's a, such a thing as merited favor with God, but it's God's unmerited favor, meaning there are no strings attached. Grace is God showing favor to people when, when there is nothing they could do to earn it. And that is, that is a really good definition. But here's the way I describe grace. It's a little simpler because I, I need simple. <laughs> here's the way I kind of describe it. The grace is when someone gives another what they do not deserve. Grace is when someone, and for us, we'll understand that as being God. When God gives us something, something good, that we do not deserve, that's grace. And the whole reason that we can understand even the concept of grace to begin with 
is because God is real. I want to show you a couple of passages of Scripture that help us to understand this. You can look at them on the overhead. I don't want you to take the time to turn there. You can jot it down, check it out later. But let's look first in John chapter 1, verse 14. You see it on the screen in front of you. John chapter 1, verse 14. In John 1, uh, the, the, the writer, John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is writing, really, these first 14 verses lay the foundation of the whole entire book of John. It's just an amazing set of verses here. This is the, the last of those 14 verses, verse 14. John writes and he says, And the Word, that's a reference to Jesus, became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so when John, writing this gospel, decides to describe Jesus He describes him as being one full of two things, full of truth, but also full of grace. Here's what John's saying, that when Jesus Christ walked this earth, when everyone looked at him, they were able to see grace embodied, right? They were able to see what grace looks like with skin and bones. They were able to see what grace looks like when it steps into a circumstance of someone who has fallen, when it steps into a circumstance of someone who is hurting, that when you saw Jesus... You saw what grace looked like embodied in a person who walked this earth. That's what John's saying. Now, if you move forward to 1 Peter chapter 5, here's Peter's perspective. We're going to look at this verse in more detail here in the next week or two. But, but notice the phrase that's highlighted. He says, after you've suffered for a little while, the context there are trials that we go through. He says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Here's how Peter describes God. He describes God as the God of all grace. In other words, it is supporting exactly what we said just a few minutes ago, that all grace, the context of it, the concept of it, gets traced right back to God. That The reason grace is available in our lives, the only reason we have any shot at grace is because God is real. That when we read, even all throughout the rest of the New Testament, when we read the phrase, the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God, it is throughout the pages of Scripture, Old and New Testament life. When you read that phrase, it reminds us that the only reason we have grace to begin with is because God's real. And if we had no God, we would have no opportunity for second chances. We would have no opportunity for the slate to be wiped clean. We would have no concept of grace whatsoever if God did not exist. And so the only reason we have grace, the only reason it's available is because God's real. Here's the second principle that I want you to jot down. It's going to be real important for us this morning. The second principle is this, is that grace is God's answer to your greatest problem in life. That when you look at the greatest problem that you face... And it's a problem that every single one of us have. There are no distinctions. Doesn't matter what neighborhood you live in, what car you drive. Doesn't matter how good or bad your upbringing was. Doesn't matter what schools you attended, how good you did on on your grades. Doesn't matter what your GPA was or how sharp your resume is. None of those things matter. The one thing that we all have in common is that every single one of us, from the back of the building to the front and everywhere in between, is that we all have a problem that is consistent throughout. All of us have the same exact problem, and that problem is that we're separated from God. That is the problem that every single one of us face. And if Scripture is true in saying that God is real, if it's true in saying that God is perfect, if the Bible is true in saying that God is holy, and if the Bible is also true in saying that we are not perfect, that we are not holy, and that we are not right with God, if it's true in saying all that, we've got a huge problem, (laughs) This problem is enormous. It's bigger. This problem is bigger. It's bigger than where your, your, your next payment's going to come from, you know, for your car, for your apartment, for your house. It's a, it's a problem much bigger than that. 
It's a problem much bigger than whether or not you're going to have a date for prom. It's a problem bigger than how you're going to fix your marriage. It's a problem much bigger than what you're going to do after retirement. This problem, if the Bible is true, that God is holy, that he's just, that he's perfect, that we're not holy, we're not true, we're not okay, if all that's true, that problem is the biggest problem that we face. By far, the biggest, the biggest problem that we face. And when we look at that problem we find that God has an answer. And that answer is grace. That one day we'll stand before God. And when we stand before Him, at that point, there will be no going back. There'll be no amending the past. There'll be no second chances. When we stand before Him, we will stand before Him as people that are needy and dependent and in need of a Savior. And eternity will hang in the balance. And we are not getting in because we were good enough. That's a problem. And God's answer to that problem is grace. When we come to grips with the depth of our, of our problem, we begin to come to grips with an understanding of the depth of grace. And when we look at Scripture, what we find is, is that all through Scripture, God presents to us not just the problem that we're separated from Him because of our sin, that doing better is not going to fix one thing, but God presents to us the answer of grace. Let's walk through a couple of passages of Scripture. I want you to turn to this one with me in your Bible, if you will. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And hold your spot there in Ephesians 2 because we're going to come back to it again towards the end. Ephesians chapter 2. I want to walk through about four different passages of Scripture that help us to understand that God's answer to the biggest problem that we face, our separation from Him for our, because of our sin, that His answer is grace. In this passage in Ephesians 2, it's being written by Paul, the, uh, the missionary. Paul understood a little bit about grace. Uh, Paul had a, had a past that from a human perspective was very good, from God's perspective was not so good. Paul was made right with God by his grace. So when Paul writes about grace, it's like he's writing his own autobiography. And so here in chapter 2, he's writing a letter to a group of Christians in the city of Ephesus, the, the, the church there. Notice what he says. He begins to describe God. He says, but God... Being rich in mercy, this is verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. In other words, when we had nothing to give to God of any value, it was then that he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, Paul says, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In other words, what Paul's saying there is that when we come to God on his terms, when we come to God having turned from our sin, placing our faith in Jesus, when we come to him that way, God doesn't immediately like transfer us up to heaven, but in a sense, our position, our standing before God has been changed right? That it's as though we're seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 7, he says, so that in the ages to come, go back, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of what? Not us, but the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, he says, by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is what? It is the gift of God. Paul is saying, that we cannot come to God on our own terms. We cannot come to him on the basis of our own good works. 
God does not operate that way. Grace is a gift that God offers to us. It is a gift that flows out of who he is. It starts with him. He is a God who is rich in mercy, who is great in his love towards us, but he is a God of grace. And it's that grace that he offers to us. Look at what it says uh, in the book of Galatians, Paul writing here uh, to the Christians in the region of Galatia. An amazing statement. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. This is, a, this is an extremely important statement. Some of, you, some of you have come out of religious uh, structures, we'll say. You come out of maybe religious backgrounds where the understanding of being right with God involved works. You know, maybe it was uh, you know, coming before a priest, or maybe it involved certain sacraments or good works that you had to do, hoops that you had to jump through. And that's kind of your understanding that, that, uh, that for you to be right with God, you, you have to kind of accomplish certain works along the way. You have to have certain things spoken of you over you. You have to do certain things, otherwise you're not going to be right with God. Paul just blows that right out of the water. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. Because if righteousness comes through the law, in other words, if righteousness comes by us keeping God's perfect law, by our good deeds, if that's how we're made righteous, <laughs> Paul says, then Jesus' death was a big waste. That's what Paul's saying here. In other words, if it was so easy for us to be made right with God by just walking an aisle or by getting baptized or by joining a church or by just cleaning up my language or going to church or giving lots of money, if all those things was what it took for me to be right with God, Paul says, then please help me to understand and to explain the, the cross. <laughs> Paul says, if it's so easy for us to just get baptized or join a church or do better, if that's all that's at stake here, then how do we explain God himself in the person of Jesus hanging on a cross? How do we explain that, Paul says? Paul says, if, if I could be made righteous through the law, then Christ wasted his life. He wasted his life by allowing himself to be crucified. He says it would have been needless for him to have done such a thing. Let's move on. Look at what it says in the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 6 on the overhead. Paul says, but if it's by grace, in other words, if we're made right with God by grace and it's not by our works, if grace is really the defining factor here that makes us right with God, if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. That's a deep statement. See, here's the problem, I think, for most of us. Most of us here, because you've chosen to come to this church, most of us here probably don't have an issue so much with coming to God solely on the basis of works, right? When a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, right, and they knock on your door to have a conversation with you, they're not so much knocking on your door to try to get you saved by their understanding of it, which is faulty. They're not there for your salvation. They're there trying to earn their own, <laughs> Because they believe they're going to be made right with God, who they've badly misrepresented through good works. It's just faulty understanding. So the problem for most of us, I think, here is not that we're trying to work our way to heaven. Here, here's the, there are some that's the case. But here, here's, I think, the danger for most of us. Is that we try to create somewhat of a hybrid between grace and works. And it shows itself like this. You know, I don't, I don't know if, if God's really going to going to bless me today because I, you know, I haven't, haven't been to church in a couple of weeks. I just kind of feel like he's, like he's probably not so much for me as he used to be. Or, you know, I've, I've uh, 
you know, I've not been, been praying the way I should, and so I, I just kind of have this feeling that God's probably not going to listen to me until I get some other things cleaned up, and, and then maybe I start praying more. I kind of like fill up my prayer bank account again, and then God will begin to listen to me when I pray. You know what that is? That's a, that's a hybrid of grace and works. There is nothing we can do. There's nothing, there's nothing that we've done that would make God love us any less, and there's nothing we could ever do that would make him love us any more if we have a relationship with him through Christ. Did, did you hear that? If you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, if you've turned from your sin, placed your faith in Jesus, you've come to him on his terms, you have surrendered your life to him, listen, there is nothing that you've done that will make him love you less, and there is nothing that you could ever do to make him love you more. That's grace. He deals with you through Jesus from the perspective of grace. He is the embodiment of grace. He is the definer of grace. He is the demonstrator of grace. He is the one who fills our lives with grace when we come to him through Jesus Christ. Paul here is dealing with this whole concept of grace versus works. He says, if we come to God on the basis of grace, but we begin to work some works into it, it's no longer grace. You remember the soap, uh, ivory soap? Remember that soap? It floats, by the way. Uh, Ivory soap, remember that? 99 and 44 one hundredths percent pure. Remember that? Is that pure? No. It sells a lot of soap. (laughs) But it's not pure. It's false advertising. It's not pure. You come to my house, I fix you an omelet. Twelve eggs, you're looking hungry. I put in sausage, bacon, bell peppers, onions, whatever you like. I put it in there. I'll put Cheerios in there if you like Cheerios. I'll put whatever you want in your omelet. A dozen eggs, right? And I prepare this omelet and I put it in front of you and you're about ready to dig in. And I say, hey, I do need to share one minor, minor detail. One of those eggs had been in there since last year, um, but the other 11 are perfectly fine, I promise. Uh, long before due date. I mean, but there was that one that was left in the back from last year. Um, are you going to eat that? No. Why? I hope not, at least. If you do, eat it outside because I don't want to... <clears throat> Why is that? Because the one messes up the rest, right? 99 and 44, 100% pure is not pure. That little bit of impurity renders the whole entire thing impure. And when we come to God on the basis of our works, and we think that we're going to be made right with God because we've been good enough, or we think God is going to hear our prayer more because we've been good enough, or we think that He's going to let us into heaven because our good outweighs our bad, we cannot then praise God for his grace because that's not grace. That's a good deal. If we get into heaven because of 99% grace and 1% works, that's a good deal. <laughs> but that's not grace. Paul says, if by grace it is no longer at all in any way, shape, or form according to works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. Listen, our relationship with God is built on the entire concept of grace. That's why we get to him. That's how we stay with him. That's how he saves us. That's how he keeps us. That's how he disciplines us. That's how he changes our lives. It's because of his enduring, prevailing grace, period. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 3. Go back just a little bit further. He says, Paul says, being justified, in other words, being declared not guilty as a gift, (laughs) It is a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, which leads us to the last point I want you to see. The last principle that applies is that grace is not a work to be accomplished. It is a gift to be received. God offers us grace as a gift. 
If we have to work for it, if we have to earn it, if we have to jump through any hoops to obtain it, it is no longer grace. And I hope by now at least just these few passages of Scripture, and again, there are about 150 other ones in the New Testament alone where that word is used. I hope you understand that grace starts with God and it can't be earned. It is a gift that he offers. Not a work to be accomplished, but a gift to be received. Let's assume for a second that you've just been invited to a dinner at the White House. Now, I understand anytime you introduce presidents, right, that's explosive because you got all kinds of people that are for and against this person, that person. Just insert your favorite president here, okay? So if that's the current one or a past one, just insert your favorite president. Don't get bogged down in that part. Let's just follow me on this, all right? <laughs> are we good? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I prayed four hours over this illustration. Just kidding. All right, so you insert your, your favorite president. Imagine that that president invites you to the White House, right, and, and, and calls you up himself to invite you. He said, I want to honor you. You know, I've heard about you, and uh, I just I want to honor you. You don't, have to, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to bring anything. Just come just the way you are, and I'm going to honor you. And by the way, I'm going to invite some of the most famous people, many of them you've heard of from, from, from our own country, and then some dignitaries, many of them you don't even know about from other countries around the world. And I want to host you at the, at the White House. So we're going to pick you up, Air Force One. We're going to bring you. And uh, we're going to take care of all your, your uh, arrangements getting you there. And so here's the date. Here's the time. Show up. You going to be there? Absolutely, you're going to be there. Right? So you go there. You walk in. And everybody starts clapping for you as you come in. You're seated right next to the president himself. And for two hours, I mean, there are people that stand and they, they talk about you. And it's just an amazing evening. And you're sitting right beside the president, right there, right there by the president. And, uh, and there you are. And at the end of the evening, everybody begins to file out. They begin to make their way out the door, and you're the last one, obviously, because you're, I mean, you're the person of honor. And as you come to the, to the exit there, leaving the White House, I mean, you're about to leave, and you're walking right past the president. Imagine that he puts his hand out, and he shakes your hand. He says, thank you so much for coming. What a great evening this has been. And you say, you know what, Mr. President, I understand that... Uh, I understand this evening was probably pretty costly for you, and I know this food wasn't free, and I know that everything that went into this took a lot of time and effort. And uh, you know what? I just I want to I want to help you a little bit to help cover the cost. And you place a one dollar bill in his hand, all right? Which reminds me of my dad, by the way, because he would always leave a dollar tip. So any waiters and waitresses for the past thirty years, forgive him. Um, but you press a dollar bill in his hand, okay? Thanks for the evening, Mr. President. Great night. Prime rib was the best I've ever had. I really enjoyed speaking with the prince of wherever, right? And you, at the end of this night, you, <laughs> you have the audacity to put into that man's hand a dollar bill? Are you kidding me? That's absurd. But it is not only absurd. Let's take it to another level. It is insulting, isn't it? I mean, it makes you want to say, if I was the president, and I'm glad I'm not, but if I was the president, I would have to say, do you even realize, do you even realize what went into this? I mean, you think a dollar is going to cover all this? This was for you. Number one, it's absurd to think a dollar, that can, a dollar can cover it, but number two, but this is for you. It's a gift. Just receive it and be glad, be, be changed by it. And don't we do the same exact thing with God and his grace? And God, who is the embodiment of grace, when Jesus walked this earth, he showed us what grace looks like. And whenever he died on the cross, it was to enact and to put into place a transaction that would secure your forever, your eternity.
His transaction on the cross, when he paid for sin, he paid for your sin, including everybody else's. So that along with that transaction goes an invitation that when we lay down our sin that separated us from him in the first place, and when we turn from it and we surrender our lives to Christ, we turn from our sin, repent, and we place our trust in Jesus. And we say, Jesus, your payment on the cross was sufficient to pay for all the junk that I've ever done wrong. And we trust him to forgive us, and we follow him with all of our hearts from that day forward. How absurd it is for us then to think that God deals with us on the basis of our good works. Really, after dying on the cross, rising from the dead, the most monumental event in all of history that changed the lives of people century after century after century that have come to him on his terms. And we think helping somebody or cleaning up our language or starting to go to church is going to make God love us a little bit more. Really. He doesn't deal with us on the basis of our works. Our works, to the, to, the, to the negative, prove our sinful heart. But long before we ever sinned, God had in the forefront of his mind and heart that he would offer a substitution and a sacrifice and a remedy for the greatest problem we'll ever face. So that we, when we one day stand before him, as bankrupt people with lives filled head to toe with sin, we can have confidence that he will say, enter in to heaven prepared for you by his grace if we've given our lives to Jesus. Listen, he will never be more against you because of what you've done wrong, and he'll never be more for you because of what you've done right. He loves you on the basis of grace, and the biggest question of all is, what then have I done with the person of Jesus? Because he is the key. And if we've given our lives to Christ and turned from our sin and placed our faith in him, then our works are opportunities to put him on display. They are not things that we use to prove our rightfulness before God. It really is. <laughs> it really is all about his grace. So do you know him today? Are you still like that gerbil on the wheel? Are you still running that treadmill of trying to do enough good to make God like you a little bit more. Christian, are you still looking at God on the basis of your works? That when you do better, he loves you more. When you do worse, he loves you less. How about if today you start a brand new day? That if you truly have a relationship with Christ, you begin to see God as the God he is. The God of what? All grace. Not, a, not an open license to go out and do whatever we want. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. But why not see God as the God of all grace? And if you don't know him today, hey, how refreshing of a message is this? That you can't get to God, so just quit trying by being better. Why not come not with your commitment of, God, I'm going to begin doing this for you. Why not come leaving your sin behind with surrender? And say, Lord Jesus, I'm not going to try to be anything for you. I'm just going to surrender my whole self to you. Trusting that you're God, that you've died and paid for it all. And today I turn from my sin and surrender everything for your forgiveness to you. Why not start there and leave this place as a person with a brand new start, a nice clean slate, with a spot in heaven waiting for you and the grace of God to carry you till you get there. It's a gift to be received. It really, really is. It's not a work to be accomplished. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. 
God, maybe the reason that we don't understand grace better, maybe the reason that we don't become overwhelmed by grace anymore is because we have forgotten, really, what it cost you for us to have it. We have forgotten that our sin was of such an atrocious nature that it required life. It required a death, really, to pay for it. That's why Jesus came, that out of your great love and your mercy, you have shown grace towards us in the death and the resurrection of your own son. And as we stand here today as bankrupt people, Lord, there are many here who understand, who know your grace. Not, we'll never fully understand it till we get to heaven. But Lord, there are many here who are so grateful for your grace. They live every day out of the depths of that grace. Their life is an offering. They're not perfect, but Lord, really every day is an offering to you. They've just never gotten over the grace that you've shown them and continue to show them. And then there are others here, Lord, who have a relationship with Christ. They've given their lives to Jesus, but they've really lost sight of what that grace even looks like. You know, they're, they're living lives of legalism where they're thinking they can be right with you by just doing better. They've forgotten, they've missed the joy of what it means to obey you and to follow you in a love relationship because they, they don't understand what grace is anymore. And then there are those, Lord, who are here that do not know you at all. And if they were to stand before you today, they would stand with the wrath of their own sin hanging over them. But today, God, you offer grace. Uh, maybe, the, maybe the richest word in the whole English language, grace. From a God who gives us what we don't deserve because your son Jesus took what he didn't deserve, our own sin. Lord, it's the greatest exchange in history. And for those that don't know you today, God, I pray that you would just help them to see it's not about jumping through hoops. It's not about getting good enough, coming to a church, cleaning up language, making better choices. It's not about those things. Those things have a place. But Lord, the only way we're right with you is when we fall down surrendered before Jesus, asking for his forgiveness and for him to take over. For those that don't know you today, Lord, right where they sit, I pray, right now, that they would have that conversation with you, Lord Jesus, inviting you in to forgive and be Lord and Savior. So wherever you lead us today, God, help us to follow in these next few moments, Lord, maybe the most important of this whole morning. Help us to do business with you. And where you're leading us, God, help us to follow. And we praise you for what you'll do today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.